You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze the various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains distributed ledger technologies and cryptocurrencies in today's episode we're going to be talking about a concept of money that has been a buzzing topic in the crypto finance world ever since the inception of bitcoin this is the concept of cbdc's or central bank digital currencies central bank digital currencies in the past few years have been seen as a means by governments to counter the rise of bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and at the same time solve some of the existing problems of government issued fiat money CBDCs today are being designed by various central banks in different parts of the world to reduce the cost of cross-border remittances, increase financial inclusion, reduce dependence on cash, and even make programmable money using smart contracts, something that was not possible before. So today we'll look at what CBDCs are, what problems they solve, and what are the key things to keep in mind when designing them. Also from a tech perspective, we'll take a look at how blockchain technology fits into designing CBDCs. Do we need blockchains to design CBDCs at all or can we have a functioning and robust CBDC without using blockchain technology at all? So, we know that different countries around the world are taking different approaches to creating their CBDCs, but if you we were trying to, you know, sort of converge on some of the most basic properties that every CBDC should have, you can boil it down to some very basic properties. The very first one is that any CBDC should be a digital asset. that means it should be completely operated on a digital ledger whether it is centralized or decentralized it doesn't matter the second is that it should be backed by a central bank that means just the way the dollar notes in your wallet can be claimed against a central bank similarly a cbdc also should be backed by the central bank the third property is that the cbdc should be central bank controlled that means for any cbdc the central bank of that country should be the entity that controls the supply of that cbdc so these are some of the most basic properties that any central bank digital currencies around the world should have and we know that different countries are taking different approaches with that nikhil uh, would you like to start off with uh, an introduction into what cbdcs are and why they matter sure so uh, cbdc or uh, central bank digital currency it is essentially an effort or a typically comes down to two kind of things uh one is essentially in economies that are moving away from cash uh, physical cash and towards a more digital settlement uh, kind of a world it becomes the replacement so to say for cash uh, that central banks can have in order for them to have some control over the monetary landscape of that particular country right so i guess a little bit of a a background on why that needs to be happen so when you look at uh, central banks right central banks essentially are currently the the institutions in nations that manage the monetary policy and the issuance of money or cash currency in the system so to uh, put it in a little different Uh, a little bit of a nuanced ma- manner currency essentially is the physical tokens that are being circulated 
uh, in the market, right? So what people are using to uh, buy commodities or buy things and sell things and the, the means of exchange, right? Uh, so that's currency. Whereas money basically is a superset that includes currency, but also includes the uh, ledger transactions and the uh, you know monetary transactions that happen between large entities across the world as well as locally uh, so basically the uh, updations of uh, various bank ledgers is all considered to be money so all of those all of those uh, assets in those various banks are also included and in most modern economies that actually forms a larger part of the uh, total money that is there in a, in the system as opposed to the currency right so why is the central bank basically uh, worried about this currently if you look at it the central bank basically issues money as well as currency it issues the cash for the low value transactions but it also has usually it has basically Every large bank uh, that operates within the country has an account with the central bank uh, in which basically the central bank can add deposits or remove uh, or uh, control the amount of money that is in their deposits uh, with the central bank. And using these, uh, uh, using these tools, uh, these deposit accounts, the central bank basically has a view as well as a control of the amount of money that is there in the uh, nation and thus is able to influence the value of that money and you know inflation and deflation and enact whatever monetary policy that they want so so that's why uh, we have a central bank and that's why basically that's what a central bank's job is so in in this context if you start thinking of okay fine if everything is going towards a, a digital settlement or a, or a digital medium then the central bank basically is going to have the situation where cash is no longer becoming uh, relevant anymore, right? So the state needs to have a role in that. Uh, and as the use of cash uh, declines, it will ultimately be uh, removed from the system because it, it will no longer become profitable for people or uh, for merchants to accept cash, right? Uh, if everybody is using digital payments, why would they have any systems to accept cash? And uh, if that's the uh, thing, if that's the problem, then basically what happens is that currently almost all other payment, digital payment rails are all privately owned, right? So it's either a bank or somebody like Visa or MasterCard or non-bank uh, financial institutions or banks, right? And all of these are private. So in this particular scenario, if any or all of these institutions fail, right? So they go bankrupt, they technically somehow something happens and they can't, are no longer able to process payments. That can actually lead to a crisis, right? Where people are no longer able to transact and there's no cash available. So obviously that is the kind of scenario that the central bank wants to avoid. And that's where the central bank digital currency or the digital uh, CBDC starts coming into the picture. 
So, uh, looks like, you know, there are many different reasons why uh, central banks around the world would want to, you know, jump into the space and actually come out with the central bank digital currency uh, of their own in a scenario where most of the settlements of uh, transactions are actually happening digitally and a lot of them are being operated privately. Uh, and also, you, as you very rightly mentioned, uh, the usage of cash is also on the decline. So, Nikhil, can you actually go a little bit more into the details of, you know, how governments view this and what are the potential, all the various potential benefits that governments are looking at, you know, with the implementation of uh, CBDCs? Sure. So, it's not just uh, governments. Uh, There have been papers from, you know, the Bank of International Settlements, uh, IMF. A bunch of people have been looking at it. And broadly, if you look at it, uh, some of the benefits of the CBDCs can be summarized as follows, right? So... One is that it widens the range of options for monetary policy. So, like I mentioned earlier, the role of central banks is to uh, control and uh, implement the monetary policy for a nation. So, by implementing digital cash, new monetary policy tools can be used. So, for example, if digital cash were to completely replace physical cash, you could basically have interest rates of much more fine control, right? So uh, you could potentially have negative interest rates, though even that, that's actually happening now also. But you would have more control uh, with digital cash with negative interest rates, right? Uh, another great advantage is it can help basically uh, the, make the financial system safer by allowing individuals, private sector, and uh, you know non-bank financial institutions to directly settle in central bank money rather than using the bank deposit and uh, you know the whole settlement schemes that are there right now right the correspondent banking uh, settlement schemes this way you can directly settle in that particular money and it significantly reduces the concentration of liquidity and the credit risk in payment systems so banks don't need to actually necessarily have large amounts of liquid cash lying around as uh, backups for as kind of like requirements in order to set up set payment systems. And that in turn basically, uh, again, uh, equalizes the playing field a lot more so that, you know, the large banks of the world don't get a unfair advantage. So by doing that, it, uh, again, you're encouraging competition and innovation. They, they would make it easier for new entrants to get into the payment sector and provide competition to existing banks which uh, right now uh, is, is, while it's happening in some parts of the world, it's still a major problem in large parts of the world, right? It can recapture, help recapture uh, things like, you know, uh, senior age and address the decline of physical cash, right? Uh, as they, Because physical payments are being replaced by electronic payments, uh, they want to, uh, you, you would want to just, have some control over the digital payments that are happening, right? So the proceeds from creating money that is currently being earned uh, by the central bank, if physical cash goes away, that senior age is lost. And uh, with digital cash, you can actually impose that as part of the issuance, right? It could be a tax on the issuance. The other thing about this, uh, which is quite, quite interesting, is that it can improve financial inclusion, right? Whereas before, if you look at it in the current uh, world, the large portion of the world is unbanked. And the reason why a large portion of the world is unbanked is because uh, 
banks basically uh, find it inefficient or uneconomic uh, to onboard these or take these people on as customers. Again, that's part of the problem because banks have all these large commitments to be made. They have these overheads to be uh, addressed and that's basically a problem. So if we are using digital currencies, it could potentially allow the central banks to basically provide uh, this particular feature uh, for financial inclusion for all citizens of the nation, right? And uh, by building these rails, uh, the central bank basically reduces a lot of the overhead. So even if they don't want to hold the accounts directly themselves, uh, it makes it much easier for smaller institutions and non-bank, uh, non-bank financial institutions to at least address the market. So you could think of peer-to-peer lenders and uh, basically the implications of alternative finance could also be handled. So these are some of the benefits of uh, uh, using, uh, you know, uh, a CBDC for a central bank. These are things. These are the things that uh, come up when uh, this topic is raised. Very well explained. So, like you mentioned, you know, with all these different benefits from managing the senior age better, collecting the taxes in, in newer ways, or uh, tackling the larger problem of financial inclusion around the globe. There are many different benefits to uh, having a CBDC from a government or another entity's perspective, right? As we said earlier, you know, there are many different approaches that different countries are taking with regard to their CBDCs around the globe. So let's move on to what are some of the most fundamental things to consider when you're trying to design a CBDC. Just to give an overview, very first factor that uh, a government would want to look at or, you know, when, when you're trying to design a CBDC is that whether you want it to have a sort of a token-like model or do you want it to be an account-based model? So a token-based model would be very similar to how Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies operate, where your CBDC becomes very similar to digital cash. And uh, most likely the private keys of the wallets in this case are controlled by the users themselves. And in contrast, an account-based model would be one where each person effectively has an account with the central bank. So uh, the bank or some other custodian entity would most likely control your keys for you in this case. And the KYC AML process probably gets outsourced to an intermediary like retail banks or some other third party. So uh, that's the first factor, you know, whether you want a token-based model or whether you want an account-based model. The second factor, of course, has to do with the kind of governance mechanisms that you want to put into place, you know, uh, whether you have a centralized or decentralized CBDC, either way. And the third factor has to do with maintaining the privacy of the users. So uh, one of the primary concerns with CBDCs is that it would make the governments uh, ever more powerful in terms of doing surveillance on their people. Uh, Since a CBDC would look to remove cash from the system, right? Uh, Every transaction would become very traceable. And the second aspect of privacy also is that, so currently users' financial data uh, might be used by the banks for commercial purposes. You know, like sharing your spending habits and other uh, with other companies and stuff. So, how does this play into the mix, right? So, how do you manage the privacy of the users when you are trying to design a CBDC? So, Nikhil, can you go into the details of how some of these factors play a role? You know, when you're when you're looking to design a CBDC. Right. To take the first point regarding the token-based model versus the account-based model. So, one thing, obviously, one question would be, okay, the first immediate thing is that, okay, who, where do these accounts reside, right? Assuming that we take an account-based model, 
presumably uh, means that each individual would have an account and uh, this would since this is a central bank uh, for of a nation that means that every citizen in the nation should ideally have an account and uh, that's a lot of accounts so uh, do you first thing to consider would be okay in the design would be is the central bank going to have the account uh, and uh, maintain that or is that going to be outsourced to other people from what i have seen uh, the majority of the cases it's quite obvious that that's going to be probably some intermediary that is appointed by the central bank uh, not necessarily the bank itself because that kind of uh, uh, the bank is uh, function is not to be uh, uh, you know a holder of accounts its function is monetary policy so it doesn't make sense for it to be the the place where all accounts are, are held and obviously the logistics of it also are a major problem so first thing is okay so in in that case then you already started having a tiered system right so you have uh, the central bank in which there is the central ledger uh, which will maintain the ledger uh, where all these accounts uh, transactions are being maintained and uh, there would be other players in the network uh, all of whom basically can do the necessary kyc aml all all the regulations that have been set proposed to identify make sure that the uh, fraud and uh, uh, money laundering concerns of uh, that are that have been uh, rules that have been placed internationally are followed and uh, that the identity is properly uh, maintained right so you'd have multiple intermediaries in the uh, they would be they could be banks it could be non bank banking institution uh, and you know just basically institutions that maintain these digital digital cash accounts right so so that that's one one thing and then the third part would be obviously uh, the citizens themselves uh, in this particular case uh, the citizens would have an uh, equivalent of a wallet so it will be an e wallet uh, this is a, a familiar concept in uh, blockchains and cryptocurrencies uh, the idea of having software wallets and uh, where they would maintain uh, uh, their tokens uh, or their their cash essentially right these wallets uh, there would be uh, also technology providers or software providers that provide these wallets and in some cases these might be the banks themselves or it might be a third party again uh, depending on the ecosystem uh, that is built right so that's that's uh, uh, an account based model in a token so coming to the token model uh, this is not as palatable to central banks uh, mainly because well if you look at the current way in which tokens uh, the token uh, the UST or uh, uh, the token model is implemented in cryptocurrencies. You basically have uh, transfers of value between keys, and there's not a lot of uh, data associated or identity associated with these keys. So obviously, the first question would be, okay, how do I identify these transactions, right? So there is that particular concern. So that kind of makes token models already a little bit more. unpalatable or disadvantages from the perspective of a central bank or the perspective of a nation 
who wants to make sure that you know international laws of KYC, ML, etc., are being maintained and identity is uh, also uh, properly accounted for. But on the other hand, you could still actually build a token model on top of an account-based system. So you could basically have tokens being generated by the central bank that are uh, issued against accounts. And uh, the token itself uh, is just at a transfer of value. So in a way, it becomes kind of almost like a hybrid of the two. You don't have, it's not a pure token-based model in the sense that those tokens essentially are associated to accounts, right, at some point. Either they are the central bank account or uh, the intermediary account uh, or the end wallet account. Uh, so that's basically uh, the token uh, model. The second part is the governance part of it. So like I'd mentioned earlier, um, from a governance perspective, most central banks do not want to be the day-to-day arbiter or the day-to-day maintainer of accounts and records and all of that. The central bank essentially looks at this as a standard or a specification uh, for a for a system, and uh, they probably would basically handle the the base ledger of the system, but leave a lot of the rest of the ecosystem uh, or the rest of the details to uh, intermediaries, right? So you would have typically a lot of participants who come in and set up accounts uh, or, and then from those accounts essentially set up further side chains uh, within which they would basically be uh, dispersing the money, uh, dispersing the digital currency, right? So uh, they would then be responsible for making sure that uh, financial regulations are met, identities maintained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, from that perspective, governance is essentially going to be handled uh, this way. From an audit perspective, or from a visibility perspective, obviously CBDCs are very attractive because it's all digital. Uh, the ledger would be uh, maintained. Uh, with the central bank, so the central bank would have full access to and full visibility into every transaction that is happening, uh, and they would be able to even uh, go ahead and uh, execute extraordinary things. So essentially, uh, off late or, or recently, we have uh, had the idea of uh, helicopter money, so to speak, quote unquote, helicopter money, where uh, the government wants to uh, provide cash to all its citizens. Uh, all of that can be easily uh, governed and easily implemented using central bank digital currencies. And uh, finally, then that we get into the concept or the uh, the problem of uh, privacy. So one of the big challenges uh, or one of the big criticisms of uh, things like Bitcoin is that there is no privacy in the transaction. So as long as you know, if there is uh, the the only privacy that Bitcoin provides is the fact that there is uh, no no clear uh, date. There's no data attached to each of those keys on either side of the transaction. So you could basically potentially generate different keys and try to hide the knowledge about a transaction. But 
it's at most a partially successful effort because with enough patience, you can trace uh, back every transaction to its source, and therefore, it it it's never truly private, right? So beyond Bitcoin, after Bitcoin, basically, there have been a lot of current cryptocurrencies that have come out. A lot of them have been focused on this particular problem. So you have cryptocurrencies like Monero, Zcash, uh, etc., that uh, basically have different ways of addressing this particular problem and uh, implementing privacy. But that basically is often at the expense of, uh, uh, or rather often increases the anonymity of the transaction, right? So uh, from the central bank's perspective, it wants to know, be able to identify people. So if there is a particular transaction that looks suspicious, it wants to be able to identify who did it. But at the same time, it wants those transactions to be private in the sense that they are not visible to other people in the network, right? And uh, that's a fundamental challenge right now. What the solutions that have been proposed uh, center around uh, using uh, different uh, networks. So you can use side chains or different networks that basically isolate transactions between multiple parties um, so that, you know, the amount of uh, visibility is restricted to essentially what is happening now. So if you basically do a transaction, you know, if I send a send a amount of money to you, it, it would be visible to the bank. So the intermediary, our banks would know that, okay, this transaction happened, but not necessarily visible to any of our friends because they have no access to that particular bank or that particular transaction, right? So they, that, that kind of privacy would be available. The other option that is being explored is to take some of the technologies like zero-knowledge proofs and uh, Pedersen commitments and, uh, you know, all, all of these uh, technologies that have come out in uh, because of these privacy-focused uh, privacy crypt cryptocurrencies and apply some combination of them on the uh, transactions themselves so that it is possible to hide, uh, you know, the details of the transaction uh, to only those parties that are uh, interested or relevant to that transaction. So there are multiple ways of doing that, both cryptographically using multi-sig uh, or, uh, uh, you know, homomorphic encryption or through algorithmically like uh, using, you know, zero knowledge proofs and stuff like that. So that's essentially one aspect also. So so that's basically what I would say, what some of these particular considerations for design of a CBDC is. Now, having said all that, let's have a quick look at what some uh, countries are doing in this particular regard, right? So it's quite interesting to see uh, the focus of uh, central banks in various countries and uh, the reasons why they are looking at pilot projects, piloting, researching CBDCs, right? So uh, one of the most advanced implementations, uh, at least publicly, uh, is uh, the one from the Bahamas. So it's the Central Bank of Bahamas. Uh, they have... Uh, created this project called Project Sand Dollar. And uh, a Sand Dollar essentially is part of uh, an existing 
payment system modernization initiative that the Bahamian government has had. It basically is focused on targeting, uh, uh, you know, the unbanked. So essentially, the Bahamas uh, is a small set of islands, and uh, the infrastructure, the banking infrastructure in all of these islands are not uniform. Some of them uh, are significantly less, uh, are under-resourced when it comes to banking infrastructure. So the goals of the of the project essentially uh, revolve around uh, financial inclusion and access, uh, making the domestic payment system more efficient and non-discriminatory uh, across all the islands and uh, provide universal access to ba- banking services reduction uh, reduction in the size of legitimate but unrecorded economic activities that happen in the informal sector so you know uh, small uh, the uh, small micro businesses and medium sized uh, businesses uh, bringing them into the digital space uh, and uh, the other aspect about it also is to strengthen the bahamian controls around money laundering and illicit activities. Uh, so uh, basically by bringing all of a larger portion of the economy into uh, digital financial services, uh, uh, they also want to kind of make sure that money laundering and illicit activities are suppressed. So w- one of the challenges that they were, reasons why they had this was essentially that the Bahamas basically uh, had to implement AML, CFT, international tax compliance uh, standards uh, in order to preserve their international correspondent banking relationships. And uh, so they have this existing effort anyway that they have to do. And uh, Project Sand Dollar is essentially one of those initiatives to kind of bring uh, bring all of this together under one roof, right? So the primary channel for this is again through a blockchain technology. The plan is to go live by second quarter of 2020. I'm not sure how uh, the pandemic could have affected that, uh, where it is currently exactly. But yeah, they're there uh, in the live experimentation stage. Uh, One of the interesting things about the CBDC of Bahamas is that they have exclusively said that, okay, privacy uh, and anonymity are not goals. So they they are going to, they have explicitly said that uh, the anonymity feature of cash is not being replicated and uh, the sand dollar infrastructure uh, would incorporate strict attention to confidentiality and data protection, but all transactions would be tied to an identity. So that's uh, one aspect of it. Uh, another uh, bank or another nation that is basically looking at this from a slightly different lens uh, is uh, the Swedish government, right? So uh, it's the the Sweden has this uh, initiative called uh, the e-krona and uh, the idea essentially is uh, to provide the general public with access to central bank money uh, in uh, because while there is a very real danger that physical cash is not going to last very long, uh, much further as a viable means of exchange in Sweden because it is one of the most digitally advanced countries and the dependence on cash is rapidly dwindling. So why is uh, 
the Bank of Sweden in- interested in this uh, is that, okay, they did a survey in 2018, only 13% uh, of their residents paid uh, for their most recent purchase in cash. Uh, the corresponding figure in 2010 was 39%. So you can see there's a significant decline uh, and it will ultimately become no longer profitable for retailers to accept cash, right? So Sweden may find itself in a few, t- few years' time in a position where cash is no longer generally acceptable by household and retailers. And the state basically wants to ensure that there is, it has a role in the payment market. Uh, it is not. Uh, uh, it does not want uh, all payment services to happen only through a private uh, uh, through private parties. Uh, it needs to. It it it, it, it the concern essentially is that if the state via the central bank does not have any payment services to offer as an alternative to the strongly concentrated private payment market, it may lead to a decline in competitiveness and a less stable payment system, as well as make it difficult for certain groups to make payments, right? So you would have the whole uh, idea of, you know, stratification of the society. And that, the fear essentially is that it will also risk eroding the basic trust in the Swedish monetary system, right? And that is where they basically said, okay, uh, let's introduce e-krona. E-krona can be described as the Swedish krona uh, that is either held in account at the central bank or it can be stored locally uh, on a card or a mobile phone app uh, using an e-wallet. And uh, essentially, it will be uh, a blockchain-based system. Uh, and they're working with Accenture, I believe, uh, in doing this. So currently, the situation uh, with the uh, eCrona is that they're doing a pilot project with Accenture aimed at developing a proposal for a technical solution. It is uh, going to be based on distributed ledger technology. uh, And uh, currently, they are evaluating it in a test environment in which the participants are and, uh, you know, like the general public in the banks, etc., are just simulated. So there's no real... Uh, participants, they are all simulated entities. Uh, so it's essentially kind of like a uh, research experiment that's happening right now. Of course, there's also uh, other uh, efforts. China is uh, doing one, but uh, I don't have too much information on it. I believe uh, it, they keep uh, saying that, you know, it's planned to go live by 2021, etc. But there's not that much information in my with me about it uh, and uh, another one which is very uh, very actively involved in the space is the monetary authority of singapore uh, they have something called project ubin uh, that they have been doing uh, since uh, for several years now uh, and they have been experimenting with different blockchain technologies and different uh, for different use cases using different companies Great. So, I mean, you touched on a lot of different approaches, you know, that are being taken by different countries uh, with regard to designing the CBDC for their nation. Moving on to the larger, one of the more <laughs> interesting questions is how does blockchain technology fit into this, right? And, and you mentioned that uh, many of the examples that you mentioned, they are using blockchain technology. But if I were to just ask you for a comparison, right, like what do you see as the for case for using blockchain technology when you're making a CBDC and an against case, you know, why you think blockchains may not be such a good option. How would you view this? 
Right. So that that's actually a pretty large question. So you can have you can make a case for CBDCs. You can make a case against CBDCs, and both are valid cases. And uh, uh, sorry, blockchain and CBDCs. To be clear, in a lot of cases, the requirements that the CBDC projects aren't specifically aimed at blockchains. I think, and I think this is a good thing. Uh, a lot of the papers, discussion papers on central banks, etc., do not actually directly refer to blockchains at all, right? Uh, it's more in the technical implementation that some DLT or blockchain technology uh, is being used, right? And that's more of a consequence of the uh, technical implementation, the technical requirement, than a you know, business requirement or a monetary requirement that the central bank has. And the case, basically, I would say uh, for blockchains uh, is the fact that, hey, most of these architectures are, blockchain architectures are decentralized. Uh, They have a good uh, record, at least so far, uh, of being relatively tamper-proof and uh, secure. They are also very good at uh, distributing data. So essentially, blockchains are designed from the ground up to to be in the peer-to-peer network model, right? So the idea of building a peer-to-peer network, whenever you think of a peer-to-peer network model, blockchain becomes one of the options, right? And uh, to a large extent, since they have a cryptocurrency as a business case and have been having cryptocurrencies as a business case for since the time they were invented, a lot of the token design or currency design requirements can be fulfilled by a blockchain architecture or a blockchain technology, right? So, so those are some of the considerations why blockchains come up. Now, uh, there are in addition some Uh, features of the blockchain uh, that we might want to consider, right? So one would be that it is a a decentralized network. So here, uh, the central bank basically does not have to take the responsibility of maintaining it all centrally and uh, have a centralized infrastructure that handles all the transactions from all the people around the world uh, that want to transact in that currency. And uh, it, it allows the central bank basically to spread out the load by appointing intermediaries, by appointing uh, validators, other nodes uh, into the network that can hand, take up some of that. So from the perspective of the central bank, basically the underlying ledger would still be under its control, but the you know handling the, uh, the load of the transactions, etc. would be distributed. The other thing about a blockchain, because of its inherent data structure, makes it very resilient to tampering. So uh, it is possible for the central bank to be attacked or to go down, but still be able to recover or still have the system continue to work because the other members in the network are able to pick up and carry on, uh, even though the central bank itself is offline, right? And same for other parts of the network. So it can be possible for banks to go offline or banks to be compromised. uh, But as a whole, the system still carries on. Third, the idea of uh, the 
e-wallet, right? And so essentially uh, it allows the end users or the citizens, uh, the account holders to basically hold their tokens uh, in their phones or in their card uh, in, 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 in elect by electronic means and uh, be able to uh, interact with and make payments as long as there is uh, internet connectivity or mobile connectivity, right? And uh, today, basically, uh, that's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lower barrier to entry than what is required in order for uh, people to open an account in a private bank. So it makes it allow, makes it possible for a large amount of the citizens uh, to be uh, brought in into the into the digital economy, so to speak, right? And uh, finally, there are certain technologies, blockchain technologies, that support this concept of uh, smart contracts. So I'm not going to go into what a smart contract is, but essentially it allows, uh, it provides the uh, central bank with a another uh, tool to kind of enact its monetary policies or to enact specific conditions uh, in a distributed manner such that it does not have to oversee every transaction that is happening, right? So this is basically the, what you call it, uh, case for using blockchains in a CBDC. Uh, so if you look at the case against it, oh, sorry, and for in the case for it also uh, is that it makes it possible, not mandatory, but possible for you to still have some sort of uh, privacy and anonymity because you can basically have, you know, things like zero knowledge proofs, multi-signatures, and all these other co cryptographic constructs uh, that you can actually implement in a manner that is not centralized. So yeah, so these would basically be the cases uh, why blockchains are useful uh, in CDBDCs. Where the bearish case or the negative case for it would be, well, central banks already have digital infrastructure that is not blockchain-based, right? And most banks already have digital infrastructure and APIs and databases and all of that. And so it is currently already possible to move money around between multiple people. Maybe it's not uh, as uh, global as the utopia is, but it is a system that is currently working. You have rails, you have credit cards, you have multiple payment rails in digital space. So one argument would be, okay, why don't we spend time to improve those and bring down the cost of those rather than, you know, implementing completely something new. The second question is regarding anonymity and privacy, right? Anonymity is not exactly something that central banks want to do have. In fact, it's none of the existing financial systems uh, uh, institutions can implement anonymity because it is against the law. It's uh, You have KYC, AML rules. If you want to participate in the global economy, you need to have the ability to identify the people behind these transactions, right? So if, if that is the criteria, and for, for central banks, that is the criteria, is that they want to participate in the current global economy, uh, they would need to have that as a criteria and therefore identity would definitely be one of the things that is emphasized. And uh, anonymity from the perspective of uh, complete anonymity is anyway currently not possible 
in cryptocurrencies or in blockchain systems. Uh, there is only pseudonymity and it's only a partial anonymity. So in which case, in that case, what are we actually gaining by using blockchains? And uh, the other point on that particular thing is that most international treaties are developed in the direction of less privacy and uh, therefore it is and it is also important to note that if you have a digital asset and you cannot identify yourself then that's a problem right the identify identity of an owner from a legal perspective needs to be known in order for that person to be able to legally claim intangible assets so the second part about it is the decentralization settlement part, right? And the main case against that essentially is that, okay, right now, if you look at cryptocurrencies, in order to be decentralized, they have actually got a major trade-off in terms of efficiency, right? So the Bitcoin system is slower, more costly than existing payment systems, right? So where what is the advantage real advantage of decentralization uh, is is if that is going to make things slow, then uh, that's actually not going to make it efficient for a central bank to implement, right? Because the central bank wants to target an entire nation. So obviously there's going to be a lot of transactions. So this is basically the main negative case that people have against using blockchains for CBDCs. So before we wrap up, uh, do you want to quickly summarize what you see as the various possibilities and challenges with CBDCs in the near future? So if you want to consider the innovation potential and of CBDCs, especially in the retail case, uh, obviously central banks will want to con conduct a lot of analysis uh, and that's what's happening right now. So it's still experimental. Uh, there has been a lot of experiments by a lot of banks and that's a good it's going in the right direction more and more banks are experimenting but still uh, still in the experimental and pilot phase uh, one example of an issue raised by retail CBDC is the negative impact on commercial banks right because if you have this level paying playing field and you have all of these other alternate payment rails well people are going to withdraw money from commercial banks and put them in CBDCs accounts, right? So this could obviously weaken banks and then you have the whole problem of, okay, uh, bank run and banks collapsing and all of that, right? Because one of the things that banks do is provide loans, uh, uh, you know, the whole fractional investment and the fractional loans thing. So uh, that will obviously be a challenge, right? And uh, the fact that, okay, everybody is going to a CBDC might cause the central bank's balance sheet to balloon. And then that would uh, lead to uh, it more problems because then it has to support all of these banks from collapsing, et cetera, et cetera, right? The risk of not implementing a CBDC is that, well, even without CBDCs, banks are not in a great situation right now. There's a pandemic, there are people are not able to pay their loans, the economies are slowing down. If the banks go down right now, people lose, lose their life savings and there's no backup, right? So by having a CBDC, it is possible to helicopter money to them. Uh, well, it's, it is possible even now, but it is easier to helicopter money to them. It is possible for them to then have like a backup savings uh, account in which they which they can trust while uh, if you look at 
the argument could be made that in most developed countries, this is not a problem because you have, uh, you know, FDIC insured and insurance uh, uh, basically um, hedging that risk. But that's not all the case. That's not the case around the world, right? So there are a lot of countries where that's not available. You have bank accounts that are uninsured. So, yeah. So so essentially, they that that particular problem, uh, the bank collapsing problem, is not unique. The other one is also like I have mentioned earlier. Uh, central banks uh, will risk losing control of the payment uh, system because. All the payment rails are private, and uh, they, the uh, if cash goes away, then they don't have a way of uh, implementing or providing uh, any controls in that. That reduces the number of tools that they have. Uh, by giving a CBDC, you have new tools for central banks to, you know, for example, expand or reduce the supply of money. Uh, it is uh, very easy for them to basically identify transactions, uh, to flag transactions, uh, to add and remove uh, network uh, uh, people into the financial network, uh, etc. So, yeah, so it is uh, definitely an additional advantage to have a CBDC in that case, especially during a crisis. All right, folks, that concludes our podcast. We hope that you found this episode on CBDCs useful. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.